tidbit from the Bionic College. You won't find hobbits, ants, balrogs, or wargs in D&D now, but that wasn't always the case. Early in D&D's history, it borrowed more directly from its inspirational material. But the Sauls and Tez Company, which held the rights to Middle Earth licensing, filed a lawsuit against TSR. The Sauls and Tez Company was apparently a little overzealous, because they also wanted D&D to remove the words dragon, dwarf, elf, goblin, and orc from the game as well. The judge looked at this request and said, This shall not pass, and then slammed the gavel on the desk thingy and said, Get the hell out. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D has inlaid our neural pathways with Mithril. Hi, I'm Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, WhatDoIKnowJR.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. Hi, I'm Ange. I've been gaming for over 35 years, and in 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew. I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017, and in 2021, they made me head Gnome. I don't know why, but it just <laughs> happened. Okay. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be talking about tying PCs to the plot of the campaign. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So, for my campaign journal, we picked up where we left off in my latest session. They decided to follow the remnants of an ancient road they found that had led them to the rot troll they previously fought. This session really pushed on my ideas of what this campaign should be. On one hand, I want it to be an open hex crawl exploration game, but I know I need to indulge my desire to build a story with my players for me to be happy with it. I knew where I wanted them to go, but I worried I might be forcing them in the direction I wanted them to go a bit too much rather than letting them go where they wanted. In the end, I decided that my players do expect me to be the ringmaster that helps provide them with a good experience. And since no one is complaining about being railroaded or having a lack of agency, I'm probably okay to keep going with the way I've been doing it. Eh, we'll see. They continue to follow the ancient role, and none of them rolled well enough to pick up on the fact that they were being followed. <laughs> they had opportunities during the exploration phase and during watches, but no one ever really rolled well enough to catch on to what was happening. That is until the following day when three drow appeared on the road in front of them. <laughs> now, as a reminder for those who have forgotten the info or are unfamiliar with Eberron, in this setting... The drow are not necessarily underground spider-worshipping denizens. Instead, they are scorpion-worshipping jungle dwellers. <laughs> um, they're basically the elves that stayed behind when the rest went north after the fall of the giant empire. There's supposedly some lore in there about who sided with the giants and who didn't, yada, yada, yada. But either way, the, the drow are these elves that stayed behind in Zendrik and... Additionally, one of the characters in the campaign, Sax the Cleric, is a drow who was originally from Zendrik. The group of drow was led by someone from Sax's past, a cleric named Lilcina, someone Sax had had romantic feelings for but had never had a chance to pursue before he got zapped across the planet into Corvair. It's his background. I don't need to go into the details. <laughs> Either way, now here she was confronting them, wanting to know why he was dressed like an outlander and why these people were traipsing through the jungle. This was a really fun scene to play out. There was a language barrier and a tense back and forth as Sax tried to control his excitement at seeing someone from his past while also reassuring her that they weren't there to cause problems. <laughs> we had made the decision that the drow actually speak giant rather than elvish, because they had remained in Zendrik and were closest to the giant empire. Sax could speak it, obviously, because he was a drow, but a couple of others, I believe Perrin and uh, Vandrith, could speak giant and could follow what was going on, while everyone else was kind of like, just kind of sitting in the background exchanging comments about like, well, hopefully it doesn't look like they're going to shoot us yet. <laughs> when she finally accepted things and gave Sax a hug, she revealed that she did actually speak common and explained to all of them that her group was trying to find the location of a snake cult that had been abducting people in the region, including most recently her brother, who was one of Sax's childhood friends. Uh, the PCs agreed to accompany them. The PCs agreed to accompany them since this aligned with what they were trying to investigate in the area. Anyway, 
since they had heard rumors of people going missing in this region. They found an entrance to an underground complex guarded by Yonti Purebloods, along with a trio of recently captured and beaten up prisoners. This is one of the encounters, I should say this is not encounter, the the whole adventure that this is going to be mm-hmm. part of is something I've been planning for a while and I'm really excited to have them, you know, getting into it. They easily defeated the ones outside and prevented any from running off to sound the alarm. Um, with the NPCs along, I was a bit worried about how this might go since I wasn't relishing the idea of playing the NPCs in the dungeon, but luckily Perrin stepped forward and encouraged Lucina and the other drow to take the rescued prisoners to safety and let the group go in and rescue any others inside. Even though, to a certain degree, Lucina may push to go in and rescue her brother, I I decided she realized that these these folk were more competent than she was and would stand a better chance of, you know, getting in and getting out. So the next session should see us getting deeper into the cult of the Snake Queen. Dun, dun, dun. Yay. <laughs> you know what's interesting is when you're talking about setting up the campaign to be more of a hex crawl to begin with, and then feeling like it's turning into a little bit more of a linear campaign, that is kind of an interesting thing to think about how campaigns sometimes do evolve past how we originally planned them. Yeah. Especially, I think, honestly, I think almost any hex crawl has the ability to do that because once you find something interesting and people really want to keep digging down into that, then, you know, people don't want to just randomly explore anymore. After we finish up with this particular adventure and then they end up making their way back to the Tortle Village for their, you know, their refugees to come and possibly settle in the area, I'll be taking a break from running for a while. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing for my campaign journal after that, but we'll, I'm going to be taking a break. And my plan is while we're on break from this campaign to do a little more fleshing out of some of the areas on the map, possibly even getting a better map because the map I have is kind of, it's just a green blob with some slightly different shades of green. <laughs> It's not a great map for what I'm using it for. So I want to see if I can get a better map with maybe a little more detail on the the geographic region, which will help me plot more stuff that they can just go explore. (laughs) Also, who knows, after this and they head back to Stormreach, they may decide to go south instead of continuing in the peninsula north of Stormreach. We'll see. What's interesting to me, too, though, is even like the Tomb of Annihilation adventure that Watsi put out. There is a part where that's a hex crawl, but at the end of the campaign, you find a a location and then it turns into a mega dungeon. It it is kind of interesting that for a while, a campaign may be one thing and then eventually it is not that thing anymore. (laughs) All right. So sadly, my game did not happen because we had several members of the group that had multiple levels of exhaustion. (laughs) So (laughs) we did not get the opportunity to play we did briefly hang out for a little bit though we did hang out for a little bit though that was nice i like having my friends to be able to talk to even if we don't end up rolling dice however i did get to talk to my daughter about the campaign that she wants me to run for her friends they have a girls night every monday and this has come up a couple times where some of her friends really want to play D and never have so we've been trying to plan this and now it looks like we're gonna shoot for having a night in march where we do our session zero So I'm kind of excited about this. For context, my daughter is an adult who lives on her own. So when we're talking about her friends, these are uh, people in their 20s and 30s. It's been about three years (laughs) since I ran D&D face-to-face. In that time, I have still been, like, accumulating tokens and dice and battle map (laughs) booklets. It's hard to say no to those things. I know. It's been like I've been stockpiling just in case. Someday I'll I'll play face-to-face again. I'll have to get back into my habit of what I do when I normally run a campaign face-to-face. And part of what I usually do is I will make player folders where I put at least like two character sheets in there. And I will find a decent cheat sheet for somebody just to have that in there so that it's a little bit faster to look up than going through the player's handbook. And then all the campaign standards that we agree on, like what resources you can use and everything... You know, I'll throw a copy of that into those uh, folders. And I may even get to use my laminator again, which I haven't used in so long. As a GM who runs for conventions, a laminator could be your best friend. Oh, my gosh. I have so many things laminated. But um, anyway, my daughter has a game room in her basement that has a pool table and she's getting a topper for it. And that's what we want to use for the game table down there. 
and there was a bar that was already set up down there. We're going to get like a little bookcase and I'm going to take a lot of my physical books over there so that I'm not lugging them back and forth from the house to there. I'm really excited about this. And the other thing is I have so many D&D books that are duplicates that I can actually haul most of these things in here enough to run a campaign <laughs> and still have most of my books, a copy of those books still here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like she's getting pretty excited about this, too. Oh, yeah, she is. This is going to be neat. I hope all of the people that haven't played D&D before are um, not disappointed by how this turns out, but I think it'll be fun. Well, hopefully it clicks with them. It should be. It, it sounds <laughs> like it's going to be a good time. Yeah, and these are people that, like, watch The Witcher and, you know, Game of Thrones and all sorts of things anyway, so they are very much fantasy fans to begin with, so this is not <laughs> alien to them at all. So today we're going to look at how to tie your player characters to the plot of the campaign. The goal is that the PCs feel like this isn't just a campaign that their characters happen to engage in, but this is that the campaign for that PC. We're going to be looking at where you can find opportunities to make these connections and just some tips and tricks for how to do this. So first question how can we use session zero to start tying the PCs to the campaign right at the beginning? All right. I love doing this kind of thing for session zero. And I have certain things that I've kind of settled into being standard for when I do session zeros. If I'm not running like a published adventure, I will have a broad idea of the campaign, but I don't have a strong arc in mind because I really want that to be informed by the decisions that the players are making. So I'll kind of pitch a broad concept and then once I start getting some feedback from the players, that's when I start making details of uh, different aspects of it. That means that I get to like potentially customize long-term villains because once I know who the characters you know care about and who they don't care about, then that's a lot easier to come up with somebody they're not going to like. <laughs> <laughs> somebody they want to punch in the face. Definitely. I tend to create custom questions for personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws because I like those concepts. But the standard way they present them in a lot of the backgrounds feels a little bit too static to get good information from. So I tend to try and look at something that is similar to what are your personality traits, but then sort of tie it to the campaign. If I were playing a nautical based campaign, I would say, do you believe in a pirate's code? You know, what is it? That sort of thing, instead of just using those generic things from the individual backgrounds. I also usually have PCs give me specific important locations that they would like me to work into the game. And I also usually ask the PCs to give me a contact or someone important to their PC so that I can build all of that into the campaign going forward. I find session zero is definitely the time to set up your campaign framework. This is the information you give the players so they can best make a character that will fit in the scope of what you're trying to do. I sometimes call this bumper bowling for GMs. I like that. Set the guidelines for the players for making their characters, and it'll hopefully have the players make characters that are more likely to fit your campaign and better work with what you're trying to do while still giving them the freedom to make whoever they want. Because I don't know if newer players have this experience, but I would say any of us who can afford officially call ourselves grognards have been in a game whether we're running in it or playing in it where somebody has made a character that is so out of the scope of the game the gm wants to run but the gm didn't feel they could say no so now they're bending over backwards to <laughs> to try and fit that character into the campaign yes or conversely the GM has an idea in their head about what they want to run, but they don't communicate it to the players and the player makes a character that doesn't work in that game. I have this happen where this was 3.5. I made a halfling beguiler who was basically a mix of illusionist and rogue mm -hmm. and we were fighting undead. I was absolutely useless for most of what we were fighting. And, you know, if the GM had been a little more open with what we were going to be getting involved in, but that wasn't the way things used to be done. So as examples of what I mean by setting up your bumper bowling, when I set up the Depths of Zendrick campaign, my guidelines were that they had to willingly choose 
to participate in the competition in Sharn to join the expedition, and they had to want to go to Zendrick. So nobody wanting to compete just to compete and then deciding not to go. And my players are good. I knew that wasn't a worry, but it was still something I wanted to be in there. In the previous Eberron campaign, the Veterans of the Gauntlet, my guidelines were that they had to have willingly served the Red Gauntlet Mercenary Company during the last war, which meant they fought for Brayland, and they also had to want to come back for the reunion that was happening in Sharn that launched the campaign. As long as they made a character that fit those conceits, we were good to go. I did not do as good of a job setting up the framework for my Dragon Heist campaign, and it showed. I think the most we said was like, the game is going to be set in uh, Waterdeep, so don't make a nature-based character. That was it. And there was really little connective tissue between the PCs to, to mesh with the campaign. I mean, the campaign ended up fine. Everyone had a good time, but I definitely struggled as a GM. I never ended up running it, but I had a uh, an Odyssey of the Dragon Lords game that I was going to run. And one of the things with those is there are backgrounds where you're taking like this epic destiny and there's different steps to it. My players got the idea, which I would have loved in just about any other campaign, where they all wanted to be related to each other. So this person was this person's brother and this person was their half sister and all of that. But the problem is the way the epic destinies work. It really messed it up. If they were family members, they kind of had to be separate people that came together to do this thing. I didn't even really catch that at first until I started really reading about how the different steps of those worked. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> so how can we use the existing rules in D and D to tie the PCs to the campaign? Right off the bat, as much as I think some of them are way too broad, I do think that traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws are a big leap forward compared to other editions of D&D where you didn't necessarily take enough time to even think that much about your characters. So I think that one of the things that is important is if you're using that in your campaign, have somewhere where you can reference what each of your characters actually put down for those things. So that way you have an idea that at least at some point in time when they made this character, this thing that they picked was important to them. I like them, but I don't think they went far enough with them. No. They can be treated too much as an afterthought. I have played so many games where nobody has even bothered to fill those in. I have too. I mean, I was actually part of why I started doing like custom ones because people didn't want to mess with the original ones. So I started coming up with questions for session zero. So it's like, you're not getting out of this. But... <laughs> <laughs> I believe they wanted to have them tied to how you earn inspiration, and that just never functionally worked very well in the game. And the problem is, a lot of them, this is something you learn from looking at other RPGs, there are certain traits that you might pick in like a Powered by the Apocalypse game, where something is an XP trigger. But the way it's phrased is, did you do this during the session, or did you not? And if you, your answer is yes, you get XP for it. That really should be how those are phrased for if you're going to get inspiration, but they're not. Some of them are like really nebulous and it's not, did you do an active thing? Yes or no. It's you vaguely kind of believe this thing long term, sort of. Sort of, kind of, maybe. And that's not great for on the fly, the DM being able to say, hey, that you just fulfilled that particular part of your, your character sheet. The other thing that I think is good for tying PCs into the campaign is using downtime rules. Because you do get an opportunity to see, one, what the characters are interested in when they aren't adventuring. And two, a lot of downtime rules generate contacts. So you're creating new NPCs that have a context for why that PC knows them. So you can create like tutors and, you know, merchants and things like that that they know that even when they're not in downtime, those NPCs can come up again as recurring elements in the story. I think as far as the actual rules go, and this is not necessarily something that's written explicitly in the mechanics of the game anywhere, but when your players make characters, they are telling you what they want to see in that campaign. Yep. Pay attention to the skills they make sure their character is good at and keep those things in mind when you're setting up your campaign. If you have somebody who has made a character who is really good at history, they want to have those moments where they can show that off. Same thing with a rogue who has a high acrobatics. They want to do their cat burglar breaking and entering thing. You want to pay attention to the characters they've made because that's going to tell you 
the type of adventures they want to have. Players want a chance to shine. They want a chance to show off. Also, pay attention to the stuff your players gravitate <laughs> towards for their characters and throw more of that in there to be cool. And by stuff, I mean, like, you have a character who very specifically chose a rapier, even though it maybe wasn't the most effective weapon for their character. They want to have a cool rapier for their character. And while sure, you can throw other magic weapons at them, they're going to be most happy when you they find a magical rapier that they can carry on into the, the adventure. Or, you know, if you find a random bauble and they, they fixate on it, it, like pay attention to the things the players are interested in, because that's kind of what they want more of. Thanks for this dagger instead of the rapier that I picked. I really like this dagger. Thanks. <laughs> Years ago in a campaign, we found a short sword in the treasure and we were all like, yep, it's a short sword. And we needed to prop open a door. We ended up using that short sword to prop open the door. <laughs> it turns out after everything was all said and done, and we, we went back and grabbed the short sword before we left, but it was still used as a door stopper. <laughs> that short sword was the most powerful magical item we'd ever found. <laughs> but because nobody's character was designed around using a short sword, nobody cared. <laughs> It was really funny, too, is when you were saying that when people pick their characters, they're telling you what you want to see in the game. I was just thinking about the Beguiler again, because with that being like an illusionist enchanter rogue in three five, that was pretty much like saying, please don't throw too many undead at me. <laughs> I know, I know. I try not to give the GM grief about it because he's a very good friend, but it was still like. You knew that the dungeon we were going into was full of undead. You oh, should have told goodness. me to make something else. <laughs> Not to mention, I believe three like undead, especially skeletons, were took half damage from piercing weapons. Mm -hmm. And as a halfling, you did less damage anyway. So it was like, if I was lucky, I was doing one point of damage to these things. So yeah, because like if you're a rogue and you end up doing small damage instead of medium and three five. Forgive the previous edition digression here, but that wasn't as much of a big deal as long as you were getting your sneak attack damage, because getting a D6 instead of a D8, whatever, you're still getting a ton of D6s on your sneak attack. But if you then are also not able to get sneak attack on anything. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a little frustrating. Moving on, how can we use NPCs to tie the PCs to the campaign? First off. NPCs as quest givers help to reinforce that the mission is for the PCs, is for one of the PCs' friends, not just for a random employer. So in other words, if you have NPCs that you have generated, either through downtime or through Session Zero or whatever, instead of having random cleric from the temple say, I need you to clear out these undead, you should really probably pull in that cleric that grew up with them, that one of them weaved into their backstory to be the one saying, hey, I really need you to do me a favor. That makes it more of, I'm doing this for a friend. I have more investment in why we're doing this thing in the first place. You can totally have your quest giver be the random hooded guy in the bar that nobody knows. <laughs> but I can tell you that the only reason your players are engaging with that plot is because they like you. And this is something more interesting to do on a Friday night than they have otherwise. <laughs> They're not invested. The other thing is having NPCs in the campaign that the PCs regularly interact with is a way to get the GM voice into the game without being too heavy handed. If you want to nudge to your players and say, I know you've been researching this red dragon. I have heard some things about this red dragon, too. And I don't think that you'll be able to take it out until you have spent several more months <laughs> learning and becoming more competent instead of just the DM saying, hey, don't do this yet. Now, if they don't take the hint, you may still want to say, hey, don't do this yet if you don't want a TPK. But it does feel a little bit more organic and more like that's part of the story when you do have those NPC mentors that can say, maybe you should do this first. Maybe you should slow down on this other thing. <laughs> Also, the other side of that coin, if your players are balking at going after something that you know is perfectly within their capabilities to take on, but they don't think it is, you can have an NPC be there to be like, no, you guys can totally handle this because that minotaur has a limp, so he's already wounded. 
you know, it's like you can you can give them more information to let them know that they could they can handle it. I've heard stories that you took out the thing in this maze, and I know for a fact that this creature is not more dangerous than that. <laughs> Trust me, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to put in here is there's sometimes advice that floats out there about RPGs that tends to go so far opposite of a bad thing that it kind of overcorrects to not using a really good thing that's a good plot element. And what I would just like to say is you can put your NPCs in danger. You just have to be really careful about not making it a fridging situation. Yes. Now, fridging is usually associated with a character that only exists to be put in danger. The only reason they exist is for that person to save them or to have, you know, dramatic pain when that person dies. If that character actually has agency in their own story, putting them in danger is not quite the same as fridging them. Yeah. That said, you can put an NPC in danger without killing them. You can give them monetary problems. You can ruin their reputation and have the PCs trying to save their reputation. Killing is not necessarily your first go-to on this, but if you do flesh out that character and they are a real character... You can put them in danger. Just don't make an NPC that exists solely to be in danger all the time for the PCs. I wrote an article on the stew about this a long time ago about how many orphans there are among <laughs> player characters. Because for so many years, players did not want to have their characters have NPC friends and family because the GM would res like, oh, I'll just kill them so they have they're motivated to go do this thing. And it's like no, that's, that's bad. It can be a useful tool, but you have to be careful about how you do it. And there's all sorts of stuff you can, you can read up about it if you want to. Yeah. Definitely create NPCs that the players have ties with. As I mentioned in my campaign journal just a few minutes ago, um, I made Sax's player give me information about his family and friends that he has left behind when he went to Corvair. His character had this whole desire. He wanted to go home, but he also felt obligated to both the Church of the Silver Flame as well as his companions. So he was going to stay with them rather than just immediately leaving and going off to try and find his people. So I wanted to make sure that I slowly started bringing in his background so that that could be part of his connection to this world. I totally could have had some random NPC lead that little drow party, but putting someone in that he knew rewarded the backstory he had created and made the campaign more personal to him. Another thing I'll say is it, when you can, tie an NPC to more than one character. That can be really fun. <laughs> in the Veterans of the Gauntlet campaign, there was one point where the PCs ran into Kelson's kid's sister on a ship they had hired to take them to Ice White Island only to realize that Mindarin had served with her in his pre-adventuring life and had possibly had a romantic relationship <laughs> with said kid sister, which led to, now mind you, this was late in the campaign. The players were really good. The characters were friends, but it still ended up with some playful ribbing about Kelson being like, you did what with my little sister? <laughs> the other thing, when your players react positively to an NPC, build that character up. Uh, in that same Veterans of the Gauntlet campaign, I had a random ogre enemy become a recurring NPC because the players felt bad for making him cry. <laughs> they actually went and bailed him out of jail and got him a job as a bouncer at their friend's tavern. And he became a regular NPC that they would do anything to project. Because he was working for cookies. <laughs> another caution, it, this is different from fridging, but another caution I'll add in there is if one of your players creates an NPC that is a friend, don't turn that friend into an enemy as some sort of dramatic twist without there being buildup leading to it. I watched this destroy a campaign when a player had an NPC that they created that was supposed to be somebody they trusted with their life. And the first thing the GM had them do was betray the party. We kind of threw a fit <laughs> and the GM was confounded because he's like, aren't you guys going to investigate? I'm like, no, because you completely betrayed 
what he created for his character. He never had a chance to experience the good stuff about that relationship to then feel bad about the the betrayal. You have to be careful with these things. Yeah. Moving on. How can we use monsters to tie the PCs into the campaign? First off, if your players happen to mention any monsters in their backstories at all, those monsters should show up again in the campaign. Can can I add on quickly? Mm-hmm. If you have a character that is a ranger and they have a favored <laughs> foe, please, for the love of God, make sure that favored foe shows up in the campaign. Yes. Um, I had a player in my uh, Tales of the Old Margrave campaign who was a warlock whose patron was Baba Yaga. She literally was raised by Baba Yaga because her whole village was eaten by ghouls. I was going to bring ghouls back up (laughs) into this. Now, this is all assuming that your player has not added something to their backstory that is also something that would be on their list of things that are on Lines and Veils, which is weird, but I'm sure somewhere out there this has happened. If that is true, then don't add the monster in, but otherwise... Yes, this is telling you exactly that this is something that needs to come back up. And what was nice about that was that PC, every time she ran into some kind of undead that fed off of the living, she would freeze up. Like, she roleplayed that out. The first round of combat, they would have to, like, snap her out of it because she fell back into that. And she was getting lots of inspiration for that. (laughs) Also, remember the context of how the monster might have come up in a character's backstory and try and use it in a similar circumstance. For example, to use that PC, because there's lots of small settlements in the Marguerite Forest in the Midgard setting, that is a good opportunity to have someone else potentially be under threat from ghouls and to have them have that shining moment where... I'm not going to freeze up this time. I'm going to save somebody that's in the exact same situation as myself, you know, or like, you know, like having an orphan adopt another orphan to train them to fight crime. Sorry. <laughs> no, not time to talk about, later. talk about it. Later. Yeah, later. <laughs> Supernatural creatures can also be really great enigmatic patrons or recurring villains because sometimes those really powerful creatures can show up. The PCs will not mess with them but they can telegraph that they are going to be a long-term foe or somebody that is guiding them to do something greater in the campaign. Yeah. We may have something like that going on in the Midgard campaign <laughs> between Ivy's uh, Valkyrie ancestor and um, Kazina's relative that may be of fiendish origin. We've got a tiefling and an Asimar in the same party. Yes. Complicated families. Yes. <laughs> One of the other things you can do is, especially if you're dealing with smart monsters, have them take an interest in the PCs. Mm-hmm. We have this whole ongoing thing in the City of Cows campaign with trio of succubuses because one of them stole Dove's partner. She basically like seduced him away from Dove and abandoned her there in the city, which was the backstory of what got her into the campaign. But this meant that there was this constant seeking for who this woman was who stole her boyfriend and then realizing, oh, it's a succubus. This explains it. And then realizing she had two more sisters in the city. And like, rather than just being some random demons that showed up, there was a personal stake in what they were doing in the campaign. And it made it much more satisfying when we finally defeated all three of them. Like Jared said, pay attention to the backstories of, of the players. Even if they don't specifically mention a particular monster, you can still do some cool stuff. In my current campaign, Manic, the druid fighter, comes from House Vidalis, which is a house focused on uh, mage breeding of animals. And in the history of that house, there is a mention of them breeding terrifying animals that nearly got the house banned and destroyed by the other Dragonmark houses. I kind of snagged this little plot point and (laughs) now have a thread running through where Manic is going to be trying to investigate whether or not there are people in his house who have kind of tried to recover those old ways of creating monstrosities. I've already seeded at least a couple of creatures so far. The bear mitt crabs... (laughs) 
which they fought on the island, and the beloved Stormbore are all things that he's like, hmm, is somebody messing around with things? It's like, you know, any of these little hooks like that can get your players more interested in things. Still, I love Stormbores. I'm sorry. It was so awesome. <laughs> it was so awesome. I may need to just throw in a random encounter where they run into like a mating pair or something <laughs> later on, now that they're slightly higher level, and just be like, ah, not these things again. <laughs> so how do we tie PCs to a published campaign, one that we didn't write ourselves? In session zero, I would say don't be afraid to give away a few broad plot points and ask the players how they want their PCs to tie into those story elements as presented. Depending on the published campaign that you're talking about, sometimes there are some major elements that aren't really major spoilers because they're going to know it going in. If you're going to play Storm King's Thunder and you say, hey, you should have a reason to be worried about giants, that's not a big spoiler for that adventure. <laughs> oh no, you told me there are giants in this campaign. Whatever am I going to do? But in, in some cases, you might want to telegraph that you might not see them right away, but they're uh, undead are going to be important, things of that nature, just so that people can start building out those connections that will become important later on, so that everything that they're tying into doesn't necessarily just focus on the starting location of the adventure. I would say try to find some way to get PCs to be personally invested with the objective of the campaign or to really hate the villain of the campaign. Also, don't be afraid to replace NPCs in the adventure with NPCs that the players have already kind of fleshed out, because in a lot of cases, that's going to make it feel a lot more personal to them, like they were meant to be interacting with these NPCs, and these NPCs were always meant to be part of the storyline. A slight alternative to that is if a PC wants to have an NPC in their background, but they haven't really fleshed them out, and you have a PC in the pre-written adventure that would work perfectly, go ahead and tie them to it. Yep, that works great too. There's nothing that says you can't take these characters that are in the pre-written adventure and give them a little bit more to their story. I would also say try to create some personalized events in between the major story beats of the published campaign that are unique to the PCs. Even if they end up just being kind of like individual scenes that they play out once per chapter. And I would say try and keep it with the theme of the published adventure, but something that is completely unique to them and things that they've run into. For example, to use Storm King's Thunder, if a giant survives an encounter that they've had, have that giant show up again and have a personal rivalry, even though that's not in the adventure anywhere because then they're going to remember that personal rivalry and that this guy came back and tried to stomp them. Literally, in this case, because they're giants. <laughs> and some published adventures kind of assume that PCs come from somewhere else to save a location. I would say try and subvert that assumption when it comes up. If there is a way to twist the beginning to make the PCs from the location they are saving, I think that's almost always going to be a better you know, concept. Not only is it better from a storytelling standpoint, so you don't always have the PCs come from a better place helping these poor unfortunates that can't help themselves. But it also means that you are saving where you're from, which is immediately a tie to that whole storyline. I think a lot of what we have said in general before this applies the same way to published campaigns. You just have to dig in and figure out where those points are that you can tie things better to the characters you have at the table um, rather than creating them on your own. Mm -hmm. um, I do. I, I have been bugging Jared for a while for <laughs> us to do an episode about how to run published campaigns. <laughs> uh, but we're still we're still putting that one on the back burner. But eventually we're going to get to that one. But basically, when you, you you have a published campaign in front of you, you need to dig into it and pull the pieces, basically pick at it, pull the pieces apart, look at what's in there, and figure out how best to adapt it for you and your group. Because mm -hmm. um, it's, sure, you can have just flip in the book as you're going and all of that, but you're going to end up stumbling along the way because sometimes information you need at point A isn't given to you until point F in the book. And then you're scrambling to figure out how to adapt these two things. And 
just remember that it's you even if you are running a published adventure it is your game you can do with it what you want definitely so what are some other tools that exist that can help you tie your pcs to the campaign first off in xanathar's guide to everything there is a section called this is your life it has basically a life path system for a DD character so it's going to tell you what kind of upbringing did you have? How many siblings did you have? Are your parents alive or dead? And it walks you through a lot of these things. You can roll randomly on it or you can pick different options. But it is potentially going to have your players flesh out more of their character than they might have thought to flesh out if they didn't walk through that. I'm not going to say that you should always use something like that. But in some cases, that is a handy thing just to make people think of stuff that they never would have thought of to define their character. Um, Descent into Avernus and Rime of the Frost Maiden both introduce character secrets. I think these are both, you know, th- both these adventures hit upon a really neat idea. The problem that I have with how they were presented is I think there's two things you need to do if you're going to introduce the concept of player secrets. And one is you need to make sure that player secrets aren't going to end up crossing anybody's lines and veils. And if they remain secret secrets from the players and not just the characters, there is a lot bigger chance of that to happen. So I think at least in broad strokes, you need to share what those secrets are with each other because What's more interesting, at least to me, is that the secret exists between the player characters, not the players. The other thing I'm going to say is if you use that idea of everyone having a player secret at the beginning, the whole point of having a secret is that sometime it it will eventually come out. So don't have a secret and then never let it show up. You know what, Leo, let there be at least one vague time when you could have revealed it. But then the second time that it seems like it would be a good time to reveal it, reveal it because it's going to be way more fun once it's out there in the open. I was in a campaign once where my character's big secret is that she was a harper, secretly a harper. And this actually never came out in the game (laughs) because one of the other players decided his character absolutely hated the harpers, (laughs) absolutely despised them and wanted to fight against them any chance he got. And this player also had a bad out-of-character reaction to another character's secret being revealed. And I'm just like, I'm just going to sit quietly over here and we're going to we're going to not tell everybody that those those sticky buns I bring everyone from Waterdeep are actually from my Harper contact. One of the other things I would say that is good to look at is there are um, there are some DMs Guild products and some third party products that introduce things. I I'm going to call them Heroic Destinies. I think they're called something a little bit different in each product. But basically, it is like a thing that sits on top of your background and says, my character is going to be this type of hero. And they are looking for these milestones. And these milestones should come up. And whenever we pass one of these milestones, I get some kind of reward that shows me that I have done what I've been aiming for. And you can find some of these in Heroes of Baldur's Gate, uh, Odyssey of the Dragon Lords, or in the Venture Maidens campaign guide. And all of these, it's, it is really neat because it doesn't necessarily have to happen at a set level, but it will tell you at some point, if someone takes this heroic destiny, this event needs to happen. It doesn't have, you know, it doesn't spell out this specific encounter with this specific NPC. It's just at some point, like, here's going to be an obvious one. If you pick Dragon Slayer, at some point, you're going to need to run into a dragon that somebody can kill. I can't tell you how many times I have played Dungeons and Dragons (laughs) and never seen a dragon in a game. I'm hoping that this campaign is making up for any deficiency of dragons that you might have had. (laughs) My Midgard game is set in the uh, Marodi Empire, which is ruled by dragons. (laughs) This is probably a slight bit of a tangent, but I think 4th edition did a good job of changing that paradigm mm-hmm. uh, because they made dragons more accessible at lower levels. Mm-hmm. I we, we were like second or third level and we fought an ice dragon. Mm-hmm. It was a young ice dragon, but I'm like, we're actually <laughs> fighting a dragon. The this dragon. is really cool. <laughs> you know, and, and fifth edition has kind of continued that. There are more lower level options yeah. to bring a dragon into play rather than Having your players be like, oh my god, it's a dragon, we're too low level, we're going to die. It's like, bring out the fine china. 
And it's actually, I, I really like, um, to continue the side tangent here, the Dragonlance adventure that just came out, they did a good job of adding in like dragon elves and wyverns as like mounts and scouts and everything for the dragon armies Mm -hmm. so that you're still getting this idea. You're fighting something that is in the dragon family, even before you can handle fighting an actual true dragon. Yeah. (laughs) So the theme is there. (laughs) I will say though, if you are going to introduce something like heroic destinies, make sure the players kind of realize that this is meant to be a broad thing. Because if you have a player that picks like a Dragon Slayer background and then they get really set on, yes, my character is going to specifically kill Cloth, the red dragon in the Forgotten Realms <laughs> that is one of the most ancient red dragons, that may be a little bit too specific unless you really <laughs> want to completely rearrange the entire campaign around that. It's probably okay just to say, I don't like dragons and I want to kill one of those things. <laughs> you know, and I'll, I'll add there that never tie like we want you to tie your campaigns to your player characters never tie it to a specific character that if that character is gone the campaign is dead absolutely you know that is that is a very important thing don't do that thing because you will be very (laughs) upset when that player has to leave the game for whatever reason and suddenly you're kind of up the creek without a paddle oh I, I had a campaign. It did not. It didn't kill the campaign, but it was a Forgotten Realms campaign, and the the party's paladin had something to resolve with her family in Sembia, which is not where they were based. They were based out of the Dale Lands. They all go down to Sembia, and they're staying at her family's estate, and we're waiting to resolve this whole storyline about her family, and she quit playing. <laughs> so everybody just kind of like quietly packed up their bags and went back to the Dale lands and <laughs> forgot about those two months that they spent in Sumbia. <laughs> this is part of why my, my other Eberron campaign, the, the veterans of the gauntlet died because I gave them all destinies. Um, <laughs> they all got marked by the pro the draconic prophecy with a destiny. And like, I didn't quite know how to handle it when like, like, we ended up with a situation where one of the characters never really got an established player. So Lorsana was played by Chris, because he could only play once in a while. So when he would come, he'd play Lorsana. Otherwise, she was an NPC. Well, when Chris decided he wanted to play more regularly, he made his own character to insert into the campaign. And a, one of the other players' partners picked up Lorsana. And then that partner kind of blew up and stopped <laughs> playing and then uh Micaiah's player had a baby and couldn't play anymore so chris retired his extra character and started playing Micaiah. and then we got <laughs> another player who joined who picked up playing lorsana and basically i had this this one you know Micaiah changed hands twice lorsana changed hands like three times and i'm like this is not fair to the players that these are the only characters allowed in this campaign you know everyone loved the campaign it was fantastic but between that particular story element being a problem and it getting difficult to run them at the level they were at in pathfinder because this was pathfinder not DD. don't shoot me (laughs) it was like we're gonna just let this campaign slide into obscurity so what you're saying is that it's probably best to leave those uh those heroic destinies somewhat vague. <laughs> yes. The the last thing I'll add on other tools you can use is well, first of all, read Gnome Stew. Yep. There is a ton of good GMing advice on there. Uh more seriously, just look for information on GMing in general. There's a lot of great books, videos, podcasts, blogs, more out there. And while we are definitely a D&D podcast, there is a lot to be learned from other games. Different games do things differently, and there is nothing to say you can't borrow some of those concepts and pull them into D&D. I'm not saying rules. I'm saying concepts like in Monster of the Week, you have these bonds that you create between the characters. That's a great way to tie the PCs together. Gumshoe, you put your clues out. You don't hide your clues behind skill rolls. You hide additional information behind the skill rolls. That's mm-hmm. a great way to run mysteries. It's like there's a lot of things and tools, tips, and tricks you can get from other games. Learning how to summarize 
aspects of your character like aspects from fate is a great way to figure out who your character is. Yes. Ultimately, listen to your players and pay attention to the characters they're making because as much work as you have may have put into your campaign, it's not going to be a good game until it is everyone's game. Make sure you keep that in mind when you're running. Absolutely. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. Now, I know, I know, I've talked up Seth Korkowski's YouTube channel before, <laughs> but he recently dropped a video talking about PvP in RPGs, both the good and the bad. And I think that he and I have a very similar outlook on PvP in our games. It's generally not something I enjoy, but at the right time, handled the right way, it can make for a very interesting game. We will have a link to that episode in our show notes. And this time around... I found a way to talk about DC Comics that is relevant to this podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> what I was going to recommend, there is a comic series currently um, being produced by DC Comics called Dark Knights of Steel. There is a Volume 1 collection out, which is the first six issues. If you're getting it monthly, it's up to issue nine as of the time of this recording. But the whole concept of this is that when Krypton blew up, the family from the House of El, which included Kal-El's parents as well, managed to land on a fantasy world instead of the more real-world grounded Earth. So they end up becoming monarchs of one of the kingdoms in this world. And Kal-El is like the heir apparent to the kingdom. Bruce grows up to become the kingdom's hunter of supernatural beings. So anybody that's using, like, unregistered magic... He's the one that goes out and hunts them down and detains them. Diana is a princess of Amazonia. I know that's a stretch. Such a stretch. But then you have some other characters like Harley is the House of Elves court jester. <laughs> Constantine is a soothsayer that works for the Kingdom of Storms, which is a kingdom that is ruled by Jefferson Pierce, who is Black Lightning in the standard continuity. There's just a lot of really interesting twists and turns and seeing where they take a character keep a similar spin to them, but put them in a fantasy story. And I've really been enjoying it so far. Especially if you get to issue nine, there is a big twist that on one hand ties into greater DC storylines, but the fact that they worked it into a fantasy setting in the way they did was like, holy crap, that was really good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I recommend that. Pick up Dark Knights of Steel if you want kind of an interesting different spin on a uh, fantasy comic book. So we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark production network, and we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, you also should consider checking out Pandas Talking Games, queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Senda every Wednesday answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing TTRPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. We've used up all our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure has been rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. 